You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 196. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you again this week. I will start with a few thoughts on Elon Musk's TweetGate initial testimonial that started this week regarding his 2018 tweet that he had funding secured to take Tesla private at $420 per share. And that investor support is confirmed. We will also touch on the very significant layoffs to start the year in big tech. Aaron will be discussing the yield curve and whether or not an inverted yield curve has been a good predictor over time of recessions. Finally, Brennan answers a question from a viewer on the age old issue of whether to invest for return or pay down debt. That is not the final thing we're doing, though. <laughs> I'm trying to cut for that again, apparently. In our Your Stock, or sorry, our Stocks 101 segment, Brett will take a look at the idea of risk and how it affects your investing. I'm going to welcome my co-hosts, Aaron and the Killer Bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? Good. What's well. your problem with Brett? Yeah. Apparently, I tried to cut him two yeah, weeks I in a row. Yeah, cut him last, last segment. <sighs> Yeah, I'm adding words to into my... Uh, Actually, I have a bit of a problem with Brett today anyway, so I, I wouldn't mind if you cut him out. We, we had a bit what, of an argument. He called you a millennial? Or yeah, he was one? trying to... Cause I'm, I'm 47, and he's trying to say that... You are not. Shut up. Went up to what? 47, Brett? 48, you were saying? 41. I, no, I thought it was... Before you were saying that they went up... I thought it was 46. 46. Okay, so yeah. you ba- you're basically saying that I was like right close to the yeah. manual side. Whereas always I knew I was a good five or six years. Try ago. to be younger, right. Aaron. Just try to be younger. Oh, it's because yeah, you look so young. Wow. Well, yes. You know, that's that kind words. Thank you very much. So, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, you still I, upset with I, him? I cracked him. So what was the, what was the real number there, bro? Uh, 26 to 41. 26 to 41 is the age range right now that millennials fall into. And then above that, of course, the greatest Ooh. generation, Gen, Gen X. X. Yeah. <laughs> At least the coolest sounding. And strategically yeah. staying out of all the drama, you know, mm-hmm. when everybody talks about the drama, it's always the boomers, the millennials, nobody ever talks about Gen X. That's just the way we like it. We're, uh, we're in the shadows just doing our thing. So, <laughs> yeah, we got to say, we're looking forward to, um, being at the world outlook conference in about, uh, 10, 12 days time on uh, February Third and fourth, we will be talking there on the fourth around two thirty, I think it is, right? So uh, any of our clients, we invite you to come out. Uh, I think there's still a few tickets available. Love to see you there. We'll know there'll be hundreds already there in person, and we'll look forward to seeing you. Whether you're from Vancouver or people flying from really all across the country, so it'd be great to see everybody at that event. Shake your hands in person. And hopefully my eye will be healed by then so I can actually see you and I won't be leaked. Um, I, I've resolved to, if we're at that event, 
and my eyes still half shut or fully shut, I'm wearing a pirate's uh, patch. I'm doing that for sure. So hold me to that. I think that you should anyways, no matter how. I think I might. Yeah. If not, Brennan's going to wear it. <laughs> yeah. Although- two. We'll have two. <laughs> Somebody's got to wear a pirate patch now. Come on. Uh, I'd like to wear two around Brennan most of the time. So two patches. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I don't have to. Wow. Take it all in. So this it, is it, why Ryan has has a red eye because he makes comments that make people want to punch him in the air. Brennan punches me all the way from Saskatoon. It's impressive. Yeah. The the other thing is you should see the rest of Brennan. He can't even stand up. I you know, I had somebody <laughs> break his legs. That's why yeah, yeah, sent yeah. him out there. His buddy Hobby, I paid off to just take him out at the knees. I'm sure. True. All right, let's get on to some topics from the week. I'm going to start by looking at the trial surrounding Musk's uh, 2018 tweets. Uh, these are the tweets that he had surrounding uh, him saying he had funding secured, in quotes, to take Tesla private at surprisingly a price of 420 per share that inv- and the investor support at the time was confirmed. Now, shareholders are suing Tesla, the CEO of Tesla as well, under uh, federal security law over his 2018 tweets, which they allege were false and misleading statements that caused them to uh, get into financial harm and losses. The courts, it's important to point out, have already deemed that the tweets uh, are untrue. The investors seek to hold Musk and Tesla's board members liable for damages. Now, Musk sent out the now infamous tweet on August 7th, 2018. The exact tweet of primary interest was am considering Tesla taking Tesla private at 420 funding secured. He followed up with a subsequent posting reading investor support is confirmed. Only reason why this is not certain is that it's contingent on a shareholder vote. The other tweet referenced, this was the other tweet referenced in the court documents. Now, just prior to the tweet, Tesla's market cap was roughly 50 billion. After the tweet, it surged to roughly 65 billion plus in that range. Now, the surge in the share price cost Tesla short sellers hundreds of millions of dollars when they were forced thereafter to cover their positions by purchasing Tesla securities at artificially inflated prices, read the initial 2018 complaint. Important notes from here. Again, the court in the shareholder suit has instructed jurors to assume Musk's declarations of quote-unquote funding secured and investor support is confirmed that they are untrue. Additionally, Musk has already settled with the SEC over the matter and paid a $20 million fine and relinquished his board chairman of Tesla, which paid a $20 million. He paid a $20 million fine of his own as well. Musk has defended himself over the claims his tweets were false, saying last year that he did have funding lined up at the time from the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which Musk said had committed unequivocally to taking Tesla private. In his testimony this past week, he is now trying to assert assert with his stake in SpaceX, which is now around 43%. That alone would be enough to cover the funding. Now, SpaceX at the time and still remains private. And I think that this assertion feels very disingenuous um, as if he would have then been able to secure 65 plus billion by either selling his stake or against maybe his stake in that private firm for 
for a multitude of reasons. I would say it's disingenuous, including the fact that the stake at the time was simply not worth enough in real cash on a sale. I would also suggest that had he informed investors he was to liquidate all his stake uh, to take Tesla private, the value of SpaceX would have likely dropped. Now, Musk has also previously said that not all his not all believe his tweets and that Twitter's character limit does not allow for comprehensive statements, even if they are truthful. Well, perhaps the answer then is to stop communicating ultra important information via this medium. I think that would be fairly simple. Now, my thoughts here, again, in the end, Musk looked very uncomfortable in his testimony and appears like a man desperately trying to backtrack and explain away unserious behavior for what is it serious business. I say own it. The statements were irresponsible and just flat out untrue. They cost investors money. Yes, they were short sellers, but that does not matter what you think about them. You cannot lie or basically commit fraud to hurt them. End of story. Pay the piper and move on is that would be my advice to Musk at this point. Right, right. I'm and sure yeah, he's not so, taking it. So it's it's yeah, so to clarify it's it's short sellers that are suing him. They were short the stock and they primarily presumably yeah. got squeezed out. And then of course after that Tesla did go on to do very well and go well beyond 420 in the market. Um but I think that to me that like the bigger thing here is just as you were saying there's a certain level of responsibility that you have when you're the CEO or when you're, when you're the chairman of a public company particularly yeah. one the size of Tesla, but really any public company. And I, I mean, I've talked to some people that have thought like, well, you know, it's no big deal. Um, you know, it's just, it's a tweet. People say things. But you, when you look at the bigger picture, like what essentially is happening here or, or did happen or could have happened is you have the CEO of a company who is is saying something that is not true that then drives the price of the shares up. And this yeah. CEO is directly incentivized by that. Either there's... there's um, there's part of the compensation that is going to be tied towards the share price. Also, in the case of Elon Musk, he owns shares, right? And the CEO is expected to have information that the rest of the market does not have, right? So just even putting Elon Musk aside, just think of other CEOs running around saying things that are patently false to, in order to drive their share price up. Like, should they not be responsible for that? And of course, Elon Musk, I remember at the time, he made the point where he's just like, well, you know, the only reason they're making a big deal out of this is because I'm Elon Musk. And, you know, whoever, you know, there's this there's this big pool at the SEC to see who gets the Elon Musk account. And that's like the highlight of their lives. And it's like, yes, with all that with all that power and all that visibility from running from being an, a major owner and the, the CEO and the chairman of one of the largest, most important companies in the world. Yes, you, you are high, held to a higher standard. And I would also say that the excuse, like the the defense that like, yes, I broke the rule. Yes, I did something I shouldn't have done. But other people have done that in the past as well. That's not a defense, right? I mean, you're going to be held. You with mean the two wrongs? Don't you exactly. Know, that. <laughs> it's certainly course, not a defense, ridiculous. right? Yeah, I know. Right. It's it's just it's 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 the type of defense you would expect from a child, right? Um. So to me, it's like, yeah, you 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 made you made a huge error, whether intentionally or unintentionally, own it, be responsible for it. You're one of the richest, most powerful people, most visible people, influ influential people in the world. Mm -hmm. You can't just go around saying whatever you want on Twitter and expect there to be no consequence. So. And, and, and it, seems, it seems pretty apparent that the funding was not signed. It was not secured. It was stated it's secured. So 
whether or not, you know, the SEC is trying, everybody at the SEC is trying to make a name by pursuing this. Of course they are. I'm but sure they are. I mean, that's always wrong. how it is when there's a big, yeah. when there's yeah. somebody who, who, who is, is famous, like obviously there's going to be more to gain by pursuing that. There's also more to gain, like not just individually for the investigators, but just to make a point that the SEC is out there enforcing the rules as opposed to and it's it, a nobody. Well, maybe that goes under, maybe that flies under the, you know, under the radar a little bit, right? Or if it you're, doesn't if you can only, the wrong it doesn't excuse did. any, any. It's no. like, you know, if, if you commit fraud, you can't be like, yeah, but other people have committed fraud in the past and they got away with it. So that, that was okay that I committed. Like that's not, it's not a defense. Uh, in, the, in, in, I, in our case, if this was a small cap, a mid cap, a large cap, company CEO comes out and says, Funding is secured. We're going private at this price to go private. Uh, and then it was a false, like we would call it white collar crime. And, and like, you know, you made it. And, and we would be right. That. Yeah. And we would be, I'm not sure why there are any excuses for what went on here at all. I mean, people try to make excuses for, uh, well, I mean, I think that whenever you have somebody trying to make famous, a defense, they, yes. he has his sick offense and they just will defend anything that he does. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, he's also become a very politically polarizing figure. So Anybody who, you know, wants to play that, you know, political side of the fence is going to either support everything that he does or, or the opposite. Right. But in this yeah. case, he was clearly wrong. We'll and see what he happens here, but he seems, it seems fairly cut and dry that if mm -hmm. there were losses that were incurred because of this statement, um, he may have to make some of them all. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what may end up happening here or Tesla may be held responsible, one of the two. And uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll follow what happens in this case. But, you know, it's, you know, it, it was irresponsible not taking a serious situation seriously. And then, you know, it goes on to the 420 comment. Uh, yeah, if I you know, could, he like... says, oh, it's because it was 20% above and we rounded up. Yeah. And, There's you no know, chance. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's doing something. He's, uh, he's unserious and this is serious. And, and you can't, you got to play within certain rules. You may think those rules are crap or whatever you think on them, then change the rules before you, you do and conduct yourself in this manner. And, you know, those, well, rules I don't know what rule place. you could argue. I'm, I'm not there. sure. You yeah, shouldn't, I don't know. you shouldn't, I you shouldn't state untrue things that are going to, that, that are going to influence share price. Anything. The price are not true. And then directly benefit you personally financially i mean that's that's it's pretty cut well i could have had the money i could have had the money well you <laughs> is there a signed contract and are you going private at that price no well then you know these statements are false so. and yeah for him to say that 420 wasn't a joke you know like he said on the stand here i think you're being misled here sir uh, 420 was not chosen as a joke it was chosen because it was 20 percent premium over the tesla stock price like you said ryan where he came in, you know, and offered to buy Twitter out at $54 and 20 cents. I'm sorry. Uh, like there's 420 in there. This is just Elon Musk being Elon Musk. You know, he is such a troll. Um, I think that he's joking around, you know, um, yeah, that's my at least thought on the price. Well, the, the joke seems to have been on him. And yeah, it's cases, starting to know. be back on yeah. him. Elon yeah. will be fine, but <laughs> let's not shed a tear for him in any of this. But, um, you know, it just, like we said, if it was, if we had recommended a company, if a CEO came out with these type of statements and they were false and misleading, we would be, you know, ripping them to shreds and that, that should happen in this case. And if, if people lost money based on these statements, they should be made whole and we'll see if that happens and we'll uh, go through this trial as it, 
as it continues to unfold. So let's get to those tech layoffs. Uh, 2023 already has seen some uh, significant layoffs. Well, I mean, they're big, large round numbers. Alphabet or Google, 12,000 employees uh, laid off. Microsoft, 10,000. Salesforce, 8,000. Amazon, 8,000. So significant layoffs, about 38,815 tech workers have been laid off in 2023 is the stat there. Um, again, Big numbers overall, but for Alphabet, for example, the 12,000 is 6% of the workforce. Microsoft, 10,000 is 5%. Salesforce, 8,000 is 10%, a little more significant. Amazon, 8,000 is just 2%. So big numbers, but in terms of the percentage of total workers, uh, not as large. However, the downward trajectory in terms of the number of employees in these firms is not something we have seen in years. And in the near term, it doesn't bode well for the general economic outlook, near and midterm, uh, or for seeing massive growth in revenue this year. It's not likely you could see retracement in some of these companies in 2023. So it's something to watch when they are saying, you know, there's some focus more on the bottom line here as well. But also, you know, when you cut that many jobs, uh, likely you're not seeing massive growth, at least for this year or into the next 18 to 24 months from those businesses. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 generally the consensus that 2023 is at, at, at the best gonna be a year of, of far lower growth or even just flat performance for some of these companies, maybe, um, and I'm talking the big tech companies, for some mid-sized tech companies, there's gonna be bigger declines. Um, but we also have to look in, like these are big numbers with respect to layoffs, but we also have to look at the record amount of hiring that these companies had done in the, in the two or three years preceding the layoffs, right? So if we, I, I don't have the exact number, but if we look at like where that brings them back to, I don't think it brings them back to more than a year, right? In terms yeah. of like the number of employees that they had. These, all these companies were hiring at just an, an, an incredible pace over the two years, two to three years before. I also think that um, it'd be interesting to know if um, they're also, if they've done hiring freezes, because I'm not sure if any of these companies have done hiring freezes. And I think that, you know, a lot of times, companies like to look for an opportunity to kind of trim off some of the excess, right? Like it's, it's a good time to, it's not necessarily that, you know, they need to make a major reduction in their workforce. It's just, there's a good opportunity to be like, you know, everybody's laying off right now. There's concern about the economy. Um, this is a good time just from a public relations perspective to kind of pick the 5% least productive. Yeah. Nobody's going to smash them in the face. Exactly. Like if you're Google and you're, you're laying off, 6% of your workforce when nobody else in the tech industry is, yeah, that's going to give you like a lot of negative PR and it's going to give you negative investor PR too, because people will be going, well, what's going on with Google? But if everybody's doing it at the same time, it's like, oh, you know, they're just, they're preparing for uh, for a mm -hmm. um, decline in the economy or, or softer economic times, which I think that there is a factor of that as well. But I also think it's also a matter of, you know, there is, there is massive hiring beforehand a big boom in these companies beforehand through the pandemic and then, and then slightly post pandemic. Um, and now, yeah, they need to, they need to sharpen the pencil a little bit and it's an opportunity, but my guess is that, you know, a lot of these companies are still hiring uh, yeah. as well. So it's, it's really, uh, you know, not at the numbers that where they were before, or maybe even close to the numbers that they're laying off, but it's, um, it's an opportunity, I think for these companies to just, you know, as I said, sharpen the pencil, get more efficient. And uh, you know, it's not like that. What did, what did Musk lay off like 50% of Twitter? 
something like that. Yeah. yeah, it was. I mean, it's you know, like these are fairly big numbers, but it's not like they're they're cutting back fifty percent of the company. But I do expect with these big tech companies, I mean, you know, the Googles, the Microsofts, some of these other ones as well. Yeah, twenty twenty three is is gonna be. We're gonna see much lower growth than we've seen in the two to three years before. But that's also because the two to three years before, there is just so much. There is so much growth. I think it was such a unique environment too that maybe some firms um, extrapolated out growth in a digital world oh, yeah. that that wasn't. You know, we've gone back. To, I mean, the world is digitized more and more, but the world has also opened up. But you can't so. just extrapolate your yeah. strongest year out ten years. Perhaps right? some of that was done, right? Yeah, and, and, and I think and it's, that's why too much hiring. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we see that time and time again. It's not that you know, there some people might have the perception that these companies really have a crystal ball and they know what's going on really in a lot of cases they're they're not that much more generally than human beings than the rest of us yeah and when yeah. you know when times are good they want to make sure that they have the staff and the infrastructure to, to take advantage of those times and typically you know what leads to a recession is that people overbuild and then inventory builds up and then they realize that they're not going to be able to sell the inventory or use all the infrastructure so they start downsizing and then people start losing their jobs. You, you look at, you know, more of a recessionary environment. Yep. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just to give a oh, size, uh, yeah, just give a size amount. Uh, at the start, at the end of uh, 2020, they had 135,000 employees and they were up past 200,000. Wow. So there was large hiring beforehand. And yeah. this is which company? And, uh, Google. Sorry. Google. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so yeah. So from, End of 2020, you said? Yeah, end of 2020, and then they went up to 186,000 in their last quarter. So they hired over like a year and three quarter period, 51,000 people, and now they're laying off 12,000. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, they're not even so, back to where they yeah. were. I mean, they just, if you look at their average, it's still a huge hiring trend on average over a three year period, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's some good perspective there. Yeah, totally. Now, Let's look at, just, Brennan, do you have anything to say or what? Yeah, I've got one thing to say, and this is like- Nice beard. Like, this isn't- That's what, that's what I want to say. We're loving it. Um, but yeah, this isn't uh, in regards to the, the layoffs or anything. I need to make a correction to my segment that I did last week in the podcast on the FHSA, uh -oh. which is the tax-free first home savings account. Yeah, Brennan made a boo-boo. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so, <laughs> so, yes. Last oh, week, you made that. a what? <laughs> a boo-boo. Last Just week, uh, I went over the uh, the new tax-free tax first home savings account, the FHSA, which essentially aims to help uh, first-time home buyers purchase a home in Canada. Uh, and in my segment, I made note that one could not use this new FHSA account in unison with the RRSP's home buyer's plan to purchase the same home. Well, that was a mistake. When the plan was first announced, this was the case. But in November of last year, the government actually revised the plan. So now first-time home buyers can now use the uh, RRSP's home buyer's plan as well as the FHSA account together towards the same home. Anyways, I needed to make that comment. Uh, the only reason I uh, caught wind of this is because the internet was uh, ripping me apart saying that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a bonehead. Uh, so I needed yeah. to wow. make that correction. Burn them at the stake. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the, the well, three thank people. You, thank you for clarifying yeah. that information and the, for us. Brian. The three people that watched that segment. <laughs> yeah, thank no one you cares for that. And only one of them actually <laughs> cared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anyways, 
How many of those people uh, that were blasting on the internet are in any position to buy a house? Uh, this, I, I don't know. Or take but, advantage uh, of that, yeah. Yeah. Let's take a guess. Of the three? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, All right. Half a person. All right, we're done. Let's, Aaron, do you want to discuss the yield curve and whether or not an inverted yield curve has been a good predictor of recessions? Do we want to get to that? I would love to do that. You got some slides, don't you? I do. Just a couple of slides here. I'm Brennan, not gonna... Brennan said while you're doing that, Brennan said the internet was ripping you for something too. Me? Oh, the internet. Was ripping, the it internet. was yes. ripping what were they, Aaron. About what? Because well, you said... I, apparently you said FXT. Yes. And F you want to know what? I, I did yeah, catch that. Were. And then I was going to say something, but the conversation changed. So yes, that is true. I, I got two letters. Um, uh, missed the, the order mixed up so you know sorry about that you probably won't be seeing me on the podcast so this anymore. is your formal apology <laughs> yeah you'll, you'll issue but i actually formal. did i actually did notice <laughs> that and uh, and i was going to clarify it but with the conversation just changed and you know i i think that most people probably figured out aaron will be saying. releasing a formal apology later today <laughs> <laughs> yes okay excellent so but anyways um let's get on to something else that the internet can blast me for because I'm sure I'll make some uh, some mistakes here as well. It's going to talk a little bit about the yield curve because this is a topic that we've been hearing in the news, particularly in the context of recession. Um, just want to talk about what the yield curve is and what it has to do with the prospects of entering a recession. So the yield curve is it's, it's essentially it's, it's a graph that shows the relationship between bond yields and their maturities. So um, essentially, if you, you the yield of a bond is the return annually that that bond is expected to produce the income return. Um, and generally speaking, a normal yield curve will have the lower returns at the shorter end of the curve. So you know the the one month, the one year, the three year, and then the yields will get larger as you as you as you as the maturity term lengthens. So you go at the five years, um, ten years. So the yield curve really looks like this on a normalized basis most of the time. It's an upward sloping curve. Um, and the reason why people generally um, want to get more of a return from longer term bonds is because they want to they want to be rewarded for the inflation risk, one of the biggest risks of a bond. So if you're if you're buying like a one month or a three month or a one year bond, you generally have a better assessment or feeling of of what inflation is going to be over that period. Um, and inflation is a direct loss to a bond investor because you don't get compensation for that from from most bonds. Um but if you but if you're extending that out if you're if you're buying a 10-year bond there's a lot of uncertainty with respect to what inflation is going to be over the next 10 years, 20 years. So people generally want to have that premium, that inflation premium on their bond and that's what a normal yield curve looks like. Um but more recently we've entered a phase um that is called an inverted yield curve. An inverted yield curve is essentially where you have the opposite where the shorter term bond yields are higher than the longer term bond yields. Um, and what a lot of history, what, what a lot of people are saying is that the inverted yield curve is often seen as an indicator of an impending recession, that it actually, and some people are saying that it actually predicts a recession. So this is essentially what the yield curve looks like um, currently. And this is an inverted yield curve. So if you look, the, the six month yield, so these are for US treasuries, uh, Six-month yield is about 4.8% compared to the 30-year yield, which is about 3.65%, say, right? So you're you're actually getting a premium on the on the short-term 
um, on the short-term bond relative to the long-term bond. Um, and there are a lot of discussions in terms of like what this means, um, but ultimately what you're going to see a lot in, in, in the media is that the inverted yield curve almost always or always in recent history is something that happens shortly before a recession. So some people will say, well, the, the inverted yield curve is a sign that we are entering into recession or that there's going to be a recession, say, in the next six months or a year. Um, so I figured why not just take a look at what history has shown us. I went to the to the uh, Fed's website, um, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Um, so what this chart shows is this is this goes back the full history that they provide to about 1975. And the, the chart shows the the spread between the 10 year uh, treasury and the two year treasury. So this is this is commonly used to determine whether or not the yield curve is is inverted. And any time the spread drops below zero, um, that means that the 10 year is trading at a lower yield than the two year. Right. So um, on this chart, these these shaded areas in the time series, these are areas where we entered into recession. So there's actually two recessions in the in the early 80s, um, one right about 1980, um, one just a couple years later. There's another recession in the early 90s, um, one in the in the early 2000s, about 2002, I think it was. Then, of course, there was the great financial recession um, in 2009. Uh, and then there was a very short lived recession, if you can even call it that. I don't know if it was officially called for, as a recession, um, but during the pandemic when when things originally locked down in 2020. And of course, anytime this line drops below the zero, the line chart drops below the zero, we have a, an inverted yield curve. So if we look here, we can see that at least going back to the mid 70s, um, this relationship does seem to hold because every time we see a recession over this period of time, the uh, the yield curve was inverted. So that's really interesting. Now, if we go right to the far right of this graph, we can see that um, not only are we in an inverted yield curve scenario right now, but the, the yield curve is, is, is more inverted now currently than it's been since, uh, since the 1980s. So in the last four recessions, if you include the pandemic, um, the, 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 the spread between the 10 year and the two year has not been has not been this negative. Now, it's really hard to see, um, but before the, the 2020 recession, so to speak, the pandemic lockdown, about six months beforehand, there was actually uh, a slight inversion in the yield curve, but it was it's very so slight. It barely even shows up on the graph. And that's very interesting because one would think, well, how could you predict? How could anybody predict? I mean, this would have been in 2019. This was, you know, maybe the, maybe the early news about the pandemic had just kind of come out. So how would people have predicted? Well, I'll leave that for the conspiracy theorists, um, you know, give them some candy there. But like, certainly it does seem that that the yield curve did drop slightly or touch that Brennan. zero line. And then we did have a recession six months later that you would think officially nobody should have been able to call that recession because it was due to a, a pandemic. But that was very short lived. So so it's very interesting here. Um, you know, one thing I will note is that the the longest recession um, by duration, by time over this period was actually the Great Financial Recession. Um, that actually started, I believe, 2008. Um, but the the yield curve, although it was inverted about, about six months to nine months before the recession started, uh, that, was the, that was the 
lowest level of inversion. So the, the line was closest to zero. So the, the yield curve was more inverted in the two recessions preceding that, even those even though those recessions were shorter. So one thing we can say is that, you know, the degree to which the yield curve is inverted does not predict the duration of the recession. And from the research that I've read, it doesn't really predict the severity of it as well. But it does seem that, you know, there is a relationship here. Um, but I, I wouldn't get too excited uh, for, for a couple of reasons. So one is that we don't really have a lot of data to work off of. Um, as I said, this data goes back to 1975. I'm going to put the pandemic aside because that's, you know, a really, really a black swan event. We really only have four, maybe five recessionary periods over that period of time. I mean, the 80s as well was was a, a little, it was it was a bit of a different scenario, I, I so to speak, relative to the other recessions. Um, you basically had two recessions within a couple year period. You can call that one recession, I suppose. Um that's really unusual. That typically doesn't happen. So in terms of conventional recessions, you're looking at three. So there's not a lot of data points to really judge this off of. Um, another thing that I'm going to point out is that, you know, somebody might look at this and they might say, well, the inversion of the yield cur curve shows to predict a recession. I would not assume that in any way, case, or any in, in, in any form. Um, it does not necessarily predict the recession, it may actually be a confounding variable, which means the thing that causes the recession also causes the yield curve inversion, right? Like the, the two things are happening more or less kind of at the same time, even though the yield curve um, inversion leads the actual official recession, there are likely still signs that the recession is coming while the yield curve is inverting. And if you think about what happens, like what causes a recession, what happens during a recession, well, typically the cause of most recessions historically is that the economy overheats. If you look at the, the economic textbook 101, the economy overheats, inflation gets high. So what happens? The, um, the central banks tighten their monetary policy, meaning that they primarily that they increase short-term interest rates in order to get inflation um, under control. And this is essentially what causes the, the, the recession. And this usually happens, you know, about six to nine months or so before the recession is officially called. So um, likely what is happening here as well is that the, the, the inversion in the yield curve uh, is being caused by the increase in short-term interest rates, um, which is already a sign that the recession is essentially coming. So that that is, you know, in one way you can look at that as somewhat of a leading indicator, but it's it's not that the inverted yield curve is causing the recession so much that, you know, the same thing that's causing the recession is causing the inverted yield curve. And why this matters is because the the only thing as an investor you should be concerned about is can I actually use this to make an investment decision? And I would say, you know, probably not. Um, and the reason for that is that, you know, most of the time the information that a recession is coming is already priced into the market before the official numbers are out. And that's the same case that we're facing right now. Officially, we're not in recession by the definition of recession or the official calls, um, but the markets have still have already contracted. They've been contracting for almost a year now. And, uh, you know, that information that a recession is coming sometimes in, sometime in 2023 is at least in part already priced into the market. So it's you can't just look at what by the time the yield curve starts to invert. I think that a lot of that is already priced in. Another thing is that just saying that a recession is coming doesn't really give you a lot of information 
because it doesn't tell you, is this going to be a deep and long recession or is this going to be a shallow and short recession? If it's a shallow and short recession, markets likely start to recover um, by the time we officially call it a recession. Um, if it's deep and long, certainly there's a lot more downside as more negative news comes out. But if you're going to try and use the inverted yield curve to make investment decisions and time the market, uh, you're, I, I really think you're still, you're still flying blind because certainly the data does not show us that the yield curve predicts the, the duration of a recession or the depth of it. Um, and that's really what's important as to whether or not, I mean, I would agree that we will enter a recession likely sometime over the next year, because that's the purpose of what the central banks are doing. They're trying to destimulate the economy, pull back on the reins of an overheated economy and labor market. And typically that causes a recession. But if it's a short and shallow recession, it may not even feel like one. And by the time it hits, um, people may already be looking at the light of the end at the for the light at the end of the tunnel and the markets can already start moving up in in advance of that. So trying to time the market using this is not uh, is not a great strategy. Um, as always, you know, it really comes down to not trying to time what's going to do well over the next six to 12 months, but rather what are the companies that are solving the important problems that need to be solved in society over the next you know, five plus years? That's the way that's the way we would invest. But it's interesting. And it does it does seem that um, that there is that there is a relationship here. Um, and once again, the yield curve today is is far more inverted that we've than we've seen since the since the 1980s. Now, I will give you, you know, another assessment on why it's so inverted right now. Um, we've had, you know, with the exception of the 1980s, we've had a huge increase in inflation over the last year. So if you're buying a one year bond, um, like right now, I don't know what GICs are are um, paying, but I think it's around, say, five. Three percent. Sorry. It's, it's three for uh, just straight like retail uh, GICs. I thought it was more 3%. than that. I thought it was like four or five percent because we. Looked I, that's at... the retail rate. I was actually looking at earlier today for uh, some siblings. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, you're so you're getting you're, regardless, are, you're, you're getting a much higher. nicer like on the one year you're getting a much nicer um, return you've gotten in the past like whether it's three four percent but if it, if you're expecting it's going to take time for the central banks to tame this inflation then you're still at a negative you're still at a negative um, return over the next year. I mean, inflation only has to be three, four percent and you're already in the negatives. Right. But if you're looking 10 years out and you're like, well, central banks are, are likely going to tame inflation over the next 12 to 18 months. And then I have another eight and a half years of bond returns. You know, your, your average inflation expectation over 10 years is likely lower than what it is over one year. So in that case, you would expect less of an inflation premium on your long term bond. So that that's that's a rationale as to why the the inverted yield curve um, is so so inverted at this point in time. But once again, I wouldn't spend too much time on trying to use this to make predictions on where the market's going to go. Um, most of this is already priced in right now. Yeah, that's that St. Louis Fed chart that you included. I think that it it, it is it's very good for you know people to look at. Um, but like a a good visual representation uh, of the yield curve. There's a lot of videos on YouTube. Like for example, um, I'll just quickly share my screen. Just so like people can kind of see what the yield curve is doing over time. So you can actually play it out and it shows, you know, what the yield curve is doing over time. Um, th there's a lot of these kind of visual representations on YouTube. Uh, but I just think that it helps to kind of get an idea uh, or give you a little bit more of a visual representation of, you know, what the yield curve is actually looking at. Uh, if that St. Louis Fed uh, chart does confuse you a little bit, um, 
even though you know it, it makes perfect sense. Obviously, you're confused. Anyway, confused is Brandon. Yeah, so. I I was not, but I just know that uh, when I've you know been studying for you know the CFA and whatnot, uh, it has mm-hmm. kind of helped me to kind of see a visual representation over time, especially when you see you know the steepening or the flattening of uh, the curve. Um, because generally coming out of a recession, I believe y- usually the curve really steepens um, a lot. So, you know, you can kind of see that uh, visually with, you know, kind of these uh, these charts that people have made on YouTube. Anyways. That's a lot of curvy talk. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go to, uh, do we want to, I, I was going to not. You should, that, um, if you Brad, find so one, I- Brennan, that you think is really good, yeah. why don't you uh, tweet it out or or. Yeah, we can do that. Um, There's a good one, like the one that I was just showing that goes from like 1954 all the way to 2019. So you can kind Mm -hmm. of see uh, that whole period and all of the recessions and what the... the Yeah, we could tweet that out um, uh, if anybody's interested in it or send it out uh, when we send out the the email for the podcast to all the uh, subscribers. So we could send that out. Uh, Let's let's get Brett in here so we don't forget him this week. Brett, do you want to talk about um, essentially the idea of risk in investing and how it affects investing? Oh, I, I, I'm actually doing stuff today. I, yes, I, you I thought are. we were it's skipping true. me again. It's true. You are getting there. Hope, somehow we got you in last week after I tried to end the show, right? <laughs> yeah. Second, second time. I can he, see out of my eye a little better this week. So I think you were right there and I didn't even oh, know. That, okay. That we'll go with your eye. Screen. That's fine. Yeah. I didn't even know you were on screen. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm actually getting to it now. All right. So I'm going to go through how uh, risk really inf- affects our investments and what types of risks and really how they affect the pricing of companies in specific. So as we pretty much all know, risk and return are related. High risk, high returns is the expectation. High risk, high reward is normally the saying. But most people will overlook or underestimate the importance of risk. Risk can really be broken down into two broad categories, systematic risk and unsystematic risk. Systematic risk is really derived just from participating in a certain market. So if you want to invest in, say, let's say a Japanese company, you're subject to the systematic risk of Japan. Makes sense. So this would be things like the Bank of Japan raising interest rates, which they haven't in a long time, which is why I'm specifically using this as an example, because there has been a bit of push not raising interest rates, but they've been lowering their bond buybacks recently. So it is something to watch. And that's obviously a systematic risk to Japan. Other types of systematic risk is, let's say, an earthquake. If an earthquake were to devastate Japan, no matter how much of a tragedy it would be, it's obviously a big effect on their economies. And really any industry or has a company that has exposure to Japan, in that case, would feel the negative impact of it. So that's really what systematic risk is. A real-world example of this is the Great Recession. The entire financial system in the U.S. especially just froze up. There was no liquidity, which caused financial markets to fail, and effectively, through contagion and other methods, affected the entire world. That was a very big systematic risk, even though it was more or less the U.S. Initially, it spread out throughout the world, and it was really the entire financial system there. So people will commonly call systematic risk as undiversifiable because you can't really get out of it if you want to invest in that market or that sector. You have to be exposed to that risk. It's not absolute. It is a bit fuzzy. So like if you're investing in, let's say, Japan, 
but like it's all it's one operation there and it's not like your entire uh sectors there let's say they're impacted by um so they make a lot of transistors let's say that would move to china would move to shenzhen so there's risk but it's not like it's always extremely strong and can be less or more and people could try to quantify this through the number the beta number so you commonly see this quoted on like yahoo or something like that and this is it's not perfect but it's a number really trying to put to it and you'll commonly see this in um any long-term analyst reports if they're doing any discounted cash flows they'll use beta as a starting point to estimate systematic risk on the other hand we have unsystematic risk and this risk is really the risk that affects an individual firm it's really what they do can affect it so if you invest in a company that does one thing and one versus another one that doesn't one may be exposed to the risk and another one might not be so this can be things like not delivering a product. A perfect example of this is Intel, which I recently covered in a Your Stock Hour Take segment. The company cannot pass its 14 nanometer node, which is just effectively how um, small the transistor is on a computer chip. And they couldn't do this for years. There was an operational failure. It's very um, well written about at this point that this is really what has pushed AMD to the taking market share effectively. And the stock price has been cut in half because of this. And it's about the same point as 2015. So the last seven years, they, they paid like a 2% dividend about average over time, which is obviously atrocious for the level of risk you're taking on. Who wants to get paid 2% dividend and lose half the stock price effectively over the last couple of years? Another example of this is the Boeing 737 MAX crashes, where Boeing just screwed up. They implemented poor software and following the tragedy, they saw mass cancellations and I don't think the sales or they weren't allowed to even sell it until 2020 or so. And then of course the pandemic then, which is a systematic risk really screwed them over. Risk outcomes are often asymmetric, meaning that the downside event may be extremely rare, but it may be extremely impactful. So let's say there was a 0.1% chance of something bankrupting the company, taking the stock right to zero every single year is unlikely to happen even if you're, you'd have to hold the stock for a thousand years for it to, on average, happen once. So most likely you're never going to see the risk, but it's going to uh, be embedded in the stock price if the stock market worked efficiently, but it doesn't always. We commonly see people and investors overlook the risk of a company. So in 2021, we saw these massive uh, growth projections. Everything needed to work out perfectly to hit these numbers. They obviously didn't. So as these operational risks really just failed, the companies weren't able to meet their goals. They weren't able to, let's say, push out 50,000 cars in a year, and they only pushed out 40,000. There's operational risk coming in and lowering the stock over time. And then, of course, at the same time, we had systematic risk. Interest rates went up. So if that same company had debt on their hands and they had floating rate debt, there's a systematic risk coming in. It's pushing down pushing up their debt, which it is isolated within the company in that case, but interest rates also do affect the broad market, which I mentioned before. Everything's based off interest rates for your return. So many companies and many people overlook that, especially asymmetric risk. So we take the stairs up in price, but we'll take the elevator down. So if those risks do come to fruition, so if those one-in-a-lifetime events happen, we're going straight down. You'll see that commonly, like if you look at a, any long-term stock chart for any indexes, you'll see it slowly go up over time, then straight down. That's what I mean by the stairs up and the elevator down.
So how how do we when we um value a company, how, how does risk really affect it? We really need to value it at a lower multiple. Let's take Donico, for example, a gold processor that we've covered in many times that operates in Peru. That's compared to an identical company, exact same operations. This is hypothetical, it's not realistic in that sense, but it operates in Canada, this hypothetical company. Peru just generally has a higher political risk than Canada. It has had recent protests uh, related to their election in, I think, 2021. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And so obviously, someone who invests in Dynacore compared to this uh, hypothetical company would want higher return because they could eventually be um, have the downside risk of those protests or anything else that happens in the country. So does that mean Dynacore is a bad investment? No, it just means you need to pay the appropriate price for the investment. And at other times, you'll have companies that will overestimate, the investor will overestimate the risk of a company. And that could make even Dynacor a more appealing investment because they're taking the price down because they think, oh, this risk is just massive. It's going to happen. But in reality, it's nothing. And that's one of the perhaps biggest issues with analyzing risk between a company. There's hardly a one-to-one comparison to make, and you can't really um, know the unknown is normally what it is. You don't know what you don't know. And that's what happens with a lot of risks. You'll hear about black swan events. No one knew about it, but it was a massive risk. So you'll commonly see analysts, will, they'll try to take a industry average to kind of adjust for these risks when you're trying to compare to stocks and to embed that systematic risk and then adjust for their um, non-systematic risks as well. So in Dynacore, let's say the average gold company was a 7 PE. And then Dynacore, because it's higher risk, you only want to pay a 6 PE, something like that. In summary... The downside risk can be sudden, and investors need to recognize risk and need to pay appropriate price for the risk that the company has. Awesome. Yeah, it's Wonder- a good summary. And and risk and time horizon are something to definitely take into account, too. Like people ask us, um, uh, I have money that I need in a year from now. What stocks should I invest in? And stocks, you know, over uh, one month, two months, three months, uh, should be considered a high risk. Uh, investment, generally speaking. If you're investing five years, 10 years in the future, it's very appropriate to build a stock portfolio. If you need the money in a year's time, it's not appropriate to be investing in, in stocks. So there's a time horizon and risk as well. Makes makes sense. But yeah, it's, totally. it's a good summary. You guys want to comment on that or do one, we move to- One thing that Brenda, I have Brenda, is Brenda. you always have- uh, you always bring up the good example for unsystematic risk or company specific risk of Elon Musk. You know, you always say, God forbid he was to die tomorrow. You know, the stock would likely take a big hit. So, you know, that's that always used a- to be true. Must so now. Now we're not sure. <laughs> yeah, yes. Maybe. Maybe. I literally gave up. a speech. Maybe I gave a speech up. at a, a like a couple hundred people uh, earlier in this year. And I was using that as an example of systematic risk. And, um, and uh, as I was saying it, I thought, uh, I'm not sure if it has the same effect right now um, as people are now, you know, lowering their expectations of, or, you know, he doesn't have the cult following, he still has some of it, but it's lessened. And so the impact of that statement is lowering over time. So I, I kind of made a joke about it. In the whole but it is a good example to drive that company specific risk home. You know, that's a, a good one. Yeah. If it's if it's uh, an entrepreneur gen- generated company, a founder led company, and that founder is a significant part of the value that you've invested in the company, and he or she is just gone, 
um, you know, that is risk you can't allay, you can't take away. Just I talk about diversification. Like if you own two or three stocks and that's one of them, you can't account for that risk. You can start to uh, diversify away that risk with about 20 stocks in a portfolio, right? So that's yes, one of the exactly. ways that you can do that. That's why you can't hold two or three individual stocks. Even if you've done all the research in the world, we've done all the research in the world. Uh, you just can't get away from that fact that, you know, that company loses its key executive, for example, and boom, you're, you're in trouble. Exactly. So systematic risk can be diversified away or sorry, cannot be <laughs> diversified away. Unsystematic <laughs> risk can be diversified away. CFA <laughs> Thank one, God I got on. that. Thank God I got that. <laughs> it's true. Uh, the internet could have had a field day with you. Oh, oh yeah. This so one close. guy that, 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 that's the internet would be on you. <laughs> So, okay, um, let's, let's finally, as Brennan, he's going to talk about in our Stocks 101 segment, uh, he's going to look at, or just a question. You have a question, right? Don't yeah, you? I had a question. From, uh, that... It's the age-old issue of whether uh, to invest for a return or pay down debt first, essentially. Yeah, ex- exactly. So we had a question from a client, um, and he was just asking, you know, whether paying down debt versus investing, you know, which way should he go essentially. So I thought that I would dig into the topic as it is becoming an ever more important question. Uh, well, we've seen interest rates on the rise. Now, I must say that deciding to use ca- uh, extra cash to invest versus paying off debt really comes down to an individual's personal situation. And there is not a one size fits all answer. But if we were listening to Dave Ramsey's show, uh, radio show, who is an American radio personality that teaches people how to budget, pay down debt, and invest in mutual funds, he would argue that there is a one-size-fits-all answer and that people should not invest a dime until all of their debt is paid off, including their credit card debt, vehicle loans, lines of credit, and even their mortgages on their home. And I've heard staunch debates uh, on his show with live callers where he tells them they must not invest until their debt is all paid off Uh, And generally, you know, this is the safer, more risk averse route for one to take. So really, it is not bad advice at all and is suitable for most. So the question is, why would one decide to invest extra cash rather than pay down their debt? Well, the only reason one would consider this is because they think that they can earn a better return on their investments than the interest rate they are paying on their debt. For example, if someone has a credit card debt, Uh, which charges an interest rate of 20%, we would advise them to pay their credit card balance off ASAP rather than invest because they would need to earn a return of over 20% on their investments to make the investing route make sense. So this brings up the first step in the pay down debt uh, versus investing decision-making process. One should look at each of their sources of debt and the interest rate that they pay on each source If they think that they can make a better return on their investments than the interest rate they are paying on their debt, they could possibly decide to invest. But remember, like Dave Ramsey preaches, paying off debt is always the safer route as there is no assurance uh, that one's investment returns will surpass the interest charges that they pay on their debt. Now, uh, about half a year ago, I was helping a childhood friend do some financial planning as he was interested in beginning to invest in the market and wanted to get his finances in order. Now, he was looking at investing about $30,000 cash that he had saved up in his bank account. 
all while he had over $80,000 in debt, which included a vehicle loan and a line of credit for a camper. And at the time, I believe the truck loan was charging an interest rate of about 4.5%, while the camper line of credit was charging about 6% interest. And my advice to him was to take the guaranteed route of paying down his debt, starting with the highest interest rate camper line of credit, rather than beginning to invest. And what he ended up doing uh, after I provided him with uh, my guidance was he took $25,000 to pay down the camper loan. And, you know, he, he was interested in investing. He wanted to play around a little bit. So he did end up taking five grand and put it into his TFSA so he could learn about the market a bit. Now, generally, I think that paying down debt is usually the more diligent way to go. But again, it all comes down to an individual's uh, personal situation. Investing rather than paying down debt is uh, definitely the riskier endeavor and can play a toll on your emotions long term. And finally, I will leave you with a simple quote from Charlie Munger. Smart men go broke three ways, liquor, ladies, and leverage. And I'll open it up to you guys. I what actually you think thought? that your, uh, your friend made a wise decision there because he took, mm-hmm. uh, he took the majority of his money and he, he put it against the high interest debt. And then he took you know, a, a smaller amount um, and started investing it because there is, there is an argument to be made um, in favor of getting some experience in investing. And the only way to do that is mm-hmm. to start actually deploying your money. But he took the majority of it and he reduced his debt. You know, another thing that I will say that that doesn't factor into just the pure interest rate, it's it would just be somebody's debt leverage ratio. I mean, if you're in a situation where, you know, your debt levels are so high that if you were to lose a paycheck or if you're, you know, on variable and interest rates were to go up any further, then... Um, you, you, and you'd be that would cause major financial trouble. That needs to be factored in as well, right? So if you have a low debt ratio, I mean, it's it's probably unrealistic to think that that you know most people are going to be completely debt free um, before they start investing. But if you um, if you have a high debt ratio, particularly amongst you know some high interest loans, um, then you want essentially just to just to put yourself in a, in a solid financial footing. You want to start attacking that first. Once you get it down to like what would be a reasonable debt ratio, that's going to depend um, on the individual, depending on their job, on a lot of different factors. But once you bring that down to what would be, you know, a conservative, healthy debt ratio, then I think it's fine to take some of your capital and start putting that towards investing. Um, Most people aren't going to be at a point where they're completely debt free. Um, You know, some people, if they're paying down a mortgage, might downsize when they retire. There's a lot of different things that factor in. I think that having a reasonable amount of debt is is fine in terms of building your your wealth and your, and your finances, but it just it's the 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 key word there is reasonable, right? Because if you're over leveraged, yeah. even if you're making more money from your stock portfolio or you think you're going to, there's still the risk that you won't. There's still the risk that something else changes, like you you know get laid off from your job, or you know you you have some other type of financial emergency, and then you have trouble making ends meet. So that's what I would say. I think that I remember yeah. Ramsey saying once, because I don't watch a show much, but I have seen it, you know, a couple of times. I think that most of the stuff that I've heard him say, it's, it's prudent advice. It's prudent. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he seems to me like to be a very conservative person, very which is fine. Yeah. Um, but I do remember him making a statement once that like nobody got rich by going into debt. That's patently false, right? Like mm-hmm. you, if, if, if there's a big difference between using debt 
for uh, to, to purchase things that you don't need, like for consumer purposes and using debt for investment, right? Like if you want to buy a rental property and you use some debt to buy that rental property and the numbers work out, that is certainly a way to build wealth, right? Most companies, most rich people, like most people that have built real wealth have used debt along the way to do it, but they've used it in an intelligent way. And they didn't load up on the debt and the credit card debt so that they could buy like a fancy new car. They, they use debt to um, build a portfolio of income producing, cash flow producing assets. As long as those are quality assets that are producing a rate of return well above what they're paying for their debt and the debt leverage ratio isn't too high, that absolutely is a way to build wealth. So I would completely disagree on that statement that I heard Ramsey make. But, yeah. you know, generally speaking, you know, he's talking to a certain market of people that aren't necessarily going to be, you know, buying a lot of um, income producing assets necessarily. So his, his, I, I would definitely say that, you know, most of the advice I've heard from him has been prudent. Yeah. The point, the distinction would be if it's consumer debt or borrowing to invest, no. Uh, well, borrowing you, to invest in what? Like most mortgage, companies will borrow to invest. No, if you're talking about borrowing to, to invest, invest in the in stock stocks. market, yeah, like yeah I would agree. Although about. one could also make an argument, which I don't totally I'm talking agree about with. the stock market. Yeah. That, that, I mean, if you're borrowing to invest in like an income producing app, like for example, if you're borrowing to invest in an income producing ass, asset relative to borrowing to invest in a company that invests in income producing assets, some people can say that like, there's not really a difference between the two. Where I would agree with you though, Ryan, is that I think that a lot of investing in the stock market, because there's, you know, the price changes every day and there's so much volatility, a lot of that comes down to psychology. And it's hard to have a healthy psychology investing in the stock market and looking, you know, to the midterm as opposed or the long term as opposed to the short term when you're leveraged on your investments, right? Especially if you have to deal with margin calls, that brings in a whole nother realm of psychology. So I would I would agree with what you're saying, although I could also see the point that, you know, some people could make that as long as you're investing in the right assets, then, you know effectively there's little difference but i i wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying it's, not arguing it's harder to fix fix your borrowing if you're borrowing to invest in stocks mm -hmm. your rate it's typically variable and you have no control like in this scenario it may have started out being able to borrow at a relatively low rate but um where you are a year later you know it makes the return you have to get in the market significantly higher to make that worthwhile mm -hmm. and you know it, it just for for me you know, pay off that consumer debt yeah. and, um, you know, yeah. don't borrow to invest in individual stocks, you know, especially on a short term basis. But I mean, that's what people look at. So, uh, you know, and mortgage debt or it's mortgage to invest. Fine. It's totally fine. You can fix that rate, too, and um, have some certainty there in terms of your rate of return if done properly. But uh, that this is a whole different matter. I think we're discussing here. Is it not, Brennan? The yeah, I just think there's there's a big difference. I mean, you could have like a person of, who's yeah, got a million dollars in debt, but then they've they've used that debt along with equity to invest in a portfolio of like income producing assets, cash flow assets, yeah. relative to somebody who's got like a couple hundred thousand in debt and they have no assets, um, and they just yeah you know, like they bought they spend it on cars, depreciating assets. Like there is a big difference between using debt to buy cash flow producing assets investments as opposed to using it to just buy depreciating consumer assets 
But even regardless of what you're putting your money into, you have to pay close attention to the debt ratio um, because, you know, there are a lot of companies out there, they're investing in some great assets potentially, but when they over leverage their balance sheet, if a projection wasn't right, the economy comes down, you know, um, declines or something, then all of a sudden that investment wasn't as great as what they thought. So you need that, that low reasonable debt ratio is really, that's part of your margin of safety. Awesome. Okay. I think that's going to end it for this week. Uh, keep your questions coming in for our, your stock, our take segments. If you want us to compare a couple companies, those questions coming in as well. If you want a topic, uh, for our investment 101 section talked about, keep those questions coming in, smash that subscribe button on YouTube. We'll keep the content coming out on a weekly basis. If you're listening to this on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts, Subscribe to us there. Leave a review. We really appreciate them. And as always, I'd like to wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.